Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, we meet a neuromorphic engineer who is building a computer that mimics the human brain. And we also chat with a chemical physicist who is working on a material that could form the basis for the next generation of solar cells. But first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society, or ECS, which is official publishing partner of the Institute of Physics and Physics World. Would you like to expand your understanding of electrochemical research? Starting in September, the ECS will offer a virtual short course series designed for people who want to gain a better understanding of electrochemical methods and research. Topics include fundamentals of electrochemistry, lithium-ion battery safety, advanced impedance spectroscopy, and electrochemical capacitor technology. Students receive significant short course registration discounts. For more information or to register, please visit www.electrochem.org forward slash education and click short course to learn more. It's the last week of August, and here in the Northern Hemisphere, I'm lamenting the end of summer. Yesterday, I was shocked when it was dark at 8.30 p.m., having become used to the long summer twilight that just a month or so ago stretched out to nearly 10. But summer is not over yet, and if you need some inspiration about how to spend the next few weeks... Check out the Physics World website, where you'll find a plethora of physics-themed articles about holidays, including a feature article about the physics of roller coasters. Author Michael Allen takes you on a virtual ride on some of the world's most famous roller coasters, and explains among other things, why the G-forces experienced in the middle of a coaster train are higher than those in the front and rear, where most riders prefer to be. The article also describes the physics of airtime, when the rider experiences weightlessness or is even pushed up off their seat. Many roller coasters have loops where the train is turned upside down, most of these loops are not circular, but rather teardrop-shaped. This is because the acceleration is greater in a circular loop, so much so that riders can suffer whiplash. To find out more about the physics of roller coasters, including how virtual reality is being used to augment the experience, look out for the article on the Physics World website. It's called Twists, Turns, Thrills, and Spills, The Physics of Roller Coasters. We're All Going on a Geeky Holiday is the title of the August edition of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester meets three people who are drawn to geeky holiday destinations. There's a radiation researcher who sings the praises of a vacation in Chernobyl, a yoga instructor who travels the world to experience solar eclipses, 
and a nutritional psychologist who recommends a visit to the Marconi Centre in Cornwall. You can find all the stories podcasts on the Physics World website or on your favourite podcast app. The brains of humans and other living creatures are remarkably efficient at processing information. They can perform some tasks faster than digital computers while using much less energy. As a result, scientists are very keen on creating technologies that mimic biological neural systems, an emerging field called neuromorphic computing. I'm joined down the line by Kwabena Boahen, who is Professor of Bioengineering and Electrical Engineering at Stanford University in California, and has developed NeuroGrid, which uses analog and digital components to emulate biological neural systems. Hi, Kwabena. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, hello, Hamish. Uh, nice to uh, be on here. So, Kwabena, what, what are the main goals of your NeuroGrid research? Yeah, I would say the uh, NeuroGrid project, we, we, which started a while ago, uh, was mainly aimed at demonstrating that this, emulating this sort of mix of digital and analog uh, techniques that the brain uses to compute can result in a much more efficient uh, computer for really modeling or emulating these uh, processes that are occurring in the brain that we're trying to understand so we can take care of uh, neurological patients better and so we can actually build also better computers, more efficient computers. So one thing that I found really interesting about NeuroGrid is that you use analog components along with digital components. So, so why don't you use a, a purely digital system? I would have thought today we have such powerful um, uh, digital processors that, that you wouldn't need to bother with, with analog. What makes analog special in, in this sort of application? So it's, it's true that digital uh, processors are really powerful and have really kind of um, improved in performance over the 55 years or so that Moore's Law has been doubling transistors on a chip every two years. And so what that has done is that we basically gotten a million-fold more transistors on a chip and that has happened by shrinking the dimensions of the devices a thousandfold. And at the same time, by making them shorter, more compact, they operate faster, they switch faster. So they're actually switching a thousand times faster. So that's like a billion times more operations per second happening on a chip than we were able to accomplish uh, 50 years ago. Okay, and so yes, we are used to this kind of improvement in performance. Um, but unfortunately, the same thing that's improving the performance is creating a different kind of problem, right? Because now that the transistors are so small, now we are spending all the energy moving signals around because the chips actually have gotten four times bigger. And the amount of energy it takes to send a signal is proportional to the distance over which you're sending it. And so by making the devices smaller, the signals that are being used to compute something are doing very little work 
but getting the information in and out, you know, the results and the operands is doing a thousand times more work than it used to take. And so our energy that we're using in these computers is not doing any computing or calculating for us. It's basically 99.9% of it is being used to move information around for communication. But it turns out that analog also has advantages to helping us communicate more efficiently. This is why we were interested in introducing analog signals back. They are playing a different role than they did 50 years ago. And so what role um, do analog signals play in NeuroGrid? So again, if you look at the brain, um, you know, or you look at the structure of a neuron, it basically consists of four parts, okay? There's what's called the synapse. It's the connection from one neuron to another, right? So that's how a signal gets from one neuron to the next one. And then the receiving end of the neuron where that signal kind of like appears is the dendrite, right? All these synaptic inputs uh, being sort of integrated or summed together somehow, thousands of them to create another signal that then gets sent on the output end of the neuron, okay? So some decision is made that, okay, this signal is worthy of telling the other neurons about it. And then the axon is the thing that communicates that worthy signal to synapses that then will we'll get back to the beginning again where now we are on the input side of another neuron. And so the point here is all the stuff that's happening on the input side in the dendrites, it's analog. And then when the signal is worthy to be communicated, that's done digitally. So the axon is transmitting these digital signals around to communicate with. And so your question is the role that analog is playing in NeuroGrid is essentially the same role it's playing in the dendritic tree or arbor of a neuron. We model that part of the neuron with analog uh, signals and circuits, just like it happens in the brain. So you, you, you've described a bit about the role of, uh, of analog signals in NeuroGrid. Can, can you give us an overview of, of the architecture? What, um, what does the system look like? Yeah, so one of the things that um, we observed when we were designing um, NeuroGrid and it's not really something we observe, you know, um, there's uh, one of my mentors when I started out, in fact, as a graduate student, um, and then, yeah, as a assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania was Peter Sterling. I would say he's still my mentor. And uh, Peter Sterling and Simon Laughlin over in uh, Cambridge have written this book called Principles of Neural Design which just came out about five years ago. That was actually before we started. But, you know, we were aware of these findings in the literature that they're setting principles that minimize the wiring in the brain, okay? And which takes up the vast majority of the volume of the brain is these wires, these dendritic arbors and axonal arbors, right? And so the principles that the brain is following to minimize those uh, uh, understood. And those then, we try to apply those in NeuroGrid, you know, because we have an even bigger challenge because we are working on these 2D silicon chips, whereas the brain is 3D, the wiring challenges for us are even more onerous, right? And so we have to try and minimize that wiring. We observed that by following these principles, we could actually 
uh, not only minimize the wiring, we could minimize the number of signals we had to send around. Okay. And so this is the whole name of the game is to reduce communication. <laughs> and it's even more true in 2D than in 3D, okay, that you just don't have enough wires. So there are two techniques that are used in engineers use, right? One is a digital technique, and the other is this analog approach that we introduce in Neurogrid, which is to say these dendritic arbors, you know, are organized, neurons in the cortex are organized into columns, right? And then these columns are sort of tiled across this 2D sheet, the size of a small pizza, which is then sort of folded into to fit in the 3D skull, right? You know, these are the Golgi and the Salsi, uh, you know, these these undulations in the in the cortex. And then the whole then there's all these wires running back and forth to connect everything up, right, across longer distances. And part of the reason why the cortex has this columnar organization is that the neurons in a column, which means that, you know, this is the pizza and, you know, like a pepperoni and everything below it is a column, right? But only that it's only about a millimeter in diameter, okay, the pepperoni we're talking about. So, so um, everything in the same column is processing the same signals. And it's computing similar things about the visual input or the auditory input or so on and so forth. And therefore, they share a lot of wiring. So this allows you to send one signal into the column and then distribute it very efficiently with very just over short distances to all the neurons that need that signal. Rather than if you put this neuron over here and that neuron over here, and then you have to send this signal to both places, you just put the neurons next to each other so that, that once the signal gets there, ex exactly, right? And so this is what the axons are doing, you know, distributing these output signals. And then, and then what makes it even more efficient is that, okay, once the axon gets there, it would have to sort of make branches to go to all these neurons it wants to talk to, but you can save that wiring by allowing those neurons to extend dendrites, which are overlapping, so that that same axon can immediately connect locally to all these branches of different dendrites. And then the dendrites will then complete the last leg of that journey. Okay. Now, it doesn't seem like we've done anything here because it's like, okay, instead of making the axon make those terminal branches, We've made the dendrites make those terminal branches, right? But the nice thing about a dendrite is that it's analog. So once the signal comes in here to one point of the dendrite and then it's going down that wire towards the cell body, it can sum with other signals that are coming from other axons into the same neuron. In other words, we don't have to run another dendritic branch to that neuron, to this neuron, to that neuron. We can just run one and sum the signals together. So one wire, by summing all these signals together, serves the role of many wires, right? So this is why analog, because analog signals you can combine in this way. Digital signals you can't. If you do that, you'll corrupt the signal. You see, it's all or nothing, and nothing else can be on there, right? Whereas analog, if you add two signals together, you get twice as much input. And if that's, you know, uh, the neuron cares twice as much about, as that, of the, about that, then you're good. And so what types of biological systems have you, have you simulated using NeuroGrid? Um, so we sort of worked our way up, you know, kind of the hierarchy, right? So first we... 
we're able to show that, you know, the main types of neurons in the brain, you know, they don't all come in the same <laughs> flavor. You know, they have different uh, roles they play. They have different ways in which they integrate information. They have different ways in which they encode that information into outputs, digital outputs, you know, so there's different types of neurons. And so first thing we did was to show that we could emulate these different types, four main types that you find in the cortex. And then the next thing we did was to show that, okay, we could capture basically ubiquitous phenomenon. One of them is something called synchrony, right? When, um, neurons fire in the same rhythm, let's say, right? So we all fire together, then we're quiet, then we fire together, we're quiet, and so forth, like these glow flies flashing inside a tree at night, right? And that's called synchrony. And so this is something that we see in the brain. We also then, you know, there's a particular type of neuron that a population of those neurons by interacting with each other can just automatically synchronize in this fashion. So that was the next step because it just involves one type of neuron. And then from there, we tried to show that we could do kind of more cognitive type uh, behavior or functions like attention where, you know, I can present you, it's like find Waldo, right? You know, I show you this picture and you have to look for Waldo in there and you have to, you know, you can't just take it in a glance and see Waldo. You have to attend to a particular point, basically close to where he is, and then you say, oh, there he is, right? So that's attention. So there's a top-down thing where you have a goal, which is to find Waldo, and there's bottom-up information that's coming in about the image, and the combination of these two things redirects the eyes so that you can search very efficiently for Waldo. And so, and it does that by enhancing signals that have those black and white stripes that, you know, in his, in his uh, uniform or whatever. <laughs> that are coming in so that they are easier for you to detect. And so we demonstrate that, that we can model this kind of enhancement of these signals based on where you're attending to in, it's called visual spatial attention. And, and, and what about applications? Um, I mean, sh should we be looking at neuromorphic computing as, as being a, you know, let's say a better way of doing universal computing like, like like a pc or in the future do you see applications being you know very specialized uh, i mean you mentioned for example analyzing images is that one sort of application where a, a neurogrid type system could really would really excel at yeah you know you should just look at yourselves or ourselves and you can answer that question right you know are we general purpose computers in some senses we are in other senses we are not right um and how do we distinguish those two uh, things? You know, like when it comes to balancing your checkbook or, you know, <laughs> adding two 10-digit numbers or multiplying them, you know, we can't do that, right? And about when it comes to recognizing, oh, is Waldo in this picture or not, you know, uh, or even like something, you know, camouflaged in the 3D forest or something like that, we're very good at picking those things out. And where just the computer will just see a sea of leaves or something, right? So, so these kinds of things where it doesn't depend on accuracy, you know, to like so many decimal places, but it sort of depends more on pattern matching or analogies or maybe what we call intuition. We're much better at doing those things. And in some sense, you know, the more... Um, 
things you are good at, the better you become at doing new things, right? So it's like, you know, when the kids show up freshmen in college and I try to teach them calculus, right? You know, I have an easier shot than if I try to do it in kindergarten. It's the same human brain, but the kid, the freshman knows a lot more so I can build on that, right? And so we are very good at doing that, like solving some new problem in a way that we know by just changing a little bit how we solve some other, that's creativity. It may not be related at first, but you figure out a way that it's related. So, so these are the kinds of things that we are hoping. So we'll complement our computers, you know, in this, in that way. And and what's next for for NeuroGrid specifically is is, is the idea to um, to try to shrink down the components and um, and sort of integrate everything onto a onto a chip or are you more interested in in developing new ways of connectivity new new components for 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 the system? So um, for NeuroGrid, yeah, first of all, the goal of NeuroGrid was to show that you know this kind of using analog to do some communication could increase the efficiency of the overall compute. But it wasn't really targeted as applications. It was more targeted for a tool for neuroscientists that could help us because, you know, we need to extract more and more of these principles that, you know, organizing principles of the brain. And then we would know how to build, before we are able, really able to build a computer that works like the brain. And so we are still in that sort of scientific exploratory stage on the one hand, we are also still in that technology exploiting exploration stage, like what's the right architecture, what are the right primitives, and so forth. And and so so that was the goal of this project. And what we learned from that is that, yeah, although analog can get us some part of the way there and can be very effective, we are still very much constrained by the 2D nature of the silicon chip. And really, we need to make a big push to build chips in 3D. In other words, not just one layer of transistors and wires, but keep laying them down, you know, several layers on top of each other, which we, we, we do right now in memory chips. This is why you can buy a phone, a smartphone with a terabyte of, you know, memory. It's really a 3D chip with like 128 layers of these transistors and wires. So the memory guys are doing that. But we haven't yet been able to uh, exploit that kind of 3D approach with computing because our traditional ways of computing don't extend to 3D, okay? If you open up your computer and you look at the processor, it's got this huge heat sink on it, right? Because it generates so much heat that we have to use the third dimension to dissipate that heat. And so imagine that we stack 100 of these computer chips on top of each other the thing will melt as soon as we turn it on, right? <laughs> so, 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 so that's the thing. So, 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 so that's a whole other chapter we are beginning to understand. Like, if we're able to develop three D technology, we really have to change the style of compute that we're doing, and it starts looking much more like the way the brain is computing. And so, these two things, you know, are coming together. Wow, that's uh, that's really interesting, Kwabena. And it, I mean, it sounds like you've got your work cut out for you <laughs> over the next few years. Th- thanks a lot for being on the podcast. Yeah, you're welcome, Hamish. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Hybrid perovskites are a family of crystalline materials that have fascinating electronic, mechanical, and chemical properties that make them suitable for a wide range of practical applications. 
Physics World's Margaret Harris speaks to a solar cell expert about why hybrid perovskites are the current focus of much of her research. I'm speaking with Giulia Grancini, who's a professor of chemical physics at the University of Pavia in Italy and a specialist in the science of photovoltaic materials of a type that could form the basis of the next generation solar panels. Hi, Giulia. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Margaret. Thank you very much for your kind invitation. So maybe you could just get started by saying, you know, what materials specifically you're interested in studying. My research deeply focuses on the hybrid perovskite solar cells and more in general, I would say hybrid perovskite materials for optoelectronics. As you know, these kind of materials have been extremely successful in the last decade for their implementation and the new generation photovoltaic technologies. They are extremely interesting, especially to me being uh, as a background, an engineer, but then moving uh, to chemistry, uh, they are very interesting because you can manipulate them quite easily by a simple chemical modification, and you can end up with amazing optoelectronic properties. So you can use them in solar cells, that all the world is working on that for their incredible light harvesting and charge transport properties. But you can use them in LED, but even in other electronic applications, we have been seeing their use for uh, um, in the ferroelectronics uh, uh, field, in spintronics, uh, so for the detection as well. So they're extremely nice materials. Now, some of our listeners may not be familiar with what perovskites are. Maybe you could just tell us what what those are, what the chemical formula is, what family of materials this is. Oh, yeah, for sure. Hybrid perovskite is a hybrid class of materials, of semiconductors in this case, which are based on lead-allied framework, which is the inorganic framework. And the inorganic framework is filled with small organic cations, forming an ABX3 structure, where indeed A is the organic cation, and then B is the lead, and X can be, for instance, uh, uh, different kind of materials like iodine, bromide, or different allides. Uh, this is the general structure of so-called hybrid perovskites, but what I mean with ABX3 structure represents a wider family of perovskites, which exists in nature and that has been discovered um, in the 19th century. Um, and they belong to, um, uh, they, they have, the, this is a very wide class of uh, perovskite structures. Hybrid is because you um, have these organic and inorganic compounds put together in the ABX3 framework. It's a semiconductor, so you might think as a rigid uh, structure and in, in the sense of being, you know, a crystalline semiconductor. However, the beauty of this material is that they are more, uh, in, uh, we, we like calling them jelly-like material because of the flexible nature of this 
materials induced by the presence of the organic cations. So this hybrid nature of the material results in a flexibility which has tremendous uh, impact on the electronic properties of the materials. You can think about electronic, but also ionic conductivity, for instance, which play a role in the transport properties of the device, but also uh, on the structural flexibility of the materials. And this is actually the core of my research. What my group is doing is changing the organic cations using small organic cations or even large bulky materials to be able to tune the perovskite structure. So we can have standard, what are called three-dimensional hybrid perovskites, but tuning the organic cations dimension, you can also tune the dimensionality of this three-dimensional network, and you can end up with what are called different dimensional perovskites, like lower dimensional perovskite 2D or layered system. So you can, this is just an example to show you the incredible tunability of this class of materials, which can be exploited to obtain the desired functionality. And what are some of the applications of these sort of lower dimensional perovskites? You know, what's, what's the purpose ultimately of doing this chemical tuning of the material? The purpose of tuning the chemical components is first of all changing the physical properties of the material. For instance, you can tune the exciton binding energy, you can tune the band gap of the material itself, the color, in other words, of your material. You can tune the transport properties of the material, so the physical properties, but also uh, the properties of the materials in terms of stability. Indeed, by changing the organic cation, you can choose, for instance, more um, hydrophobic materials. And I, I'd like to uh, mention that stability, as you might know, is one of the big problems in perovskite field. Mm. So you can tune the material properties. You can tune also the stability of the, the resulting stability of the field that you can make. And this is extremely important. Going back to your question, what are the applications? This is extremely important for real world applications that can range from photovoltaics. I think while well, photovoltaics is the most uh, um, exploited, the most studied application so far for the hybrid perovskites materials. But as I mentioned at the beginning, also other applications like light emitting uh, devices, transistors, detectors. Of course, you always have to keep in mind the uh, golden triangle rules, which is stability, efficiency, and uh, cost. So hybrid perovskites are very good and they stand over established technologies for cost, low cost, and high performances. But stability is nowadays the challenges which all the world is trying to, to face. And when you say stability, it's, it's, it's really that these materials are, are not, they degrade over time when exposed to sunlight and sometimes moisture, I think, which is obviously a really bad thing if you want, you're thinking about something you might want to put in solar panels on the roof of your house. That's correct. When we uh, measure uh, the operational stability of a device, you have to take into account uh, real conditions, which are humidity, 
uh, UV light, thermal stress, oxygen in the air, all these uh, parameters have a different influence on the perovskite degradation and altogether they can be very drastically reducing the performances of the perovskite device. So of course uh, there is a vast research into trying to find new solutions to, to avoid that which I think uh, embrace uh, two different kinds of, of, uh, of uh, fields of research. You can stabilize the active material itself. So let's say from a, a linear point of view, the material can be more stable, so less prone to degradation, less prone to the infiltration of oxygen or water molecules. Uh, I, I just remind you what I, I said before about the hydrophobic cation. So you, you improve the material stability or you can work and engineer the whole device and improve the device stability. For instance, uh, with uh, developing uh, uh, extra layer to cover the, the solar cell or as it has also been done for other technologies, for instance, you know, uh, engineering the device to improve the robustness of the device itself. Of course, uh, you also have to keep in mind you, you, the, the, the three pillars I mentioned to you before, that you, if you add extra layers with glass or expensive polymers, then, then you increase the cost. So the research uh, goes in parallel into these multiple directions, I would say. And then, so what are some of the other challenges of working with perovskites for solar photovoltaic applications? I mean, I think you mentioned that they, they generally contain lead, which is obviously a, a chemical you don't want in your body, certainly, and it's not very good for the environment at all. You're right. Toxicity is one of the other challenges of hybrid perovskite research. There has been a few trials looking at non-toxic or less toxic elements. However, they are still far from reaching the high efficiency as we obtain with the standard lead-based hybrid perovskites, or another point that is much less considered usually is the abundance of the elements. So when you go into non-lead, non-toxic elements, like bismuth, for instance, they are more uh, scarce in the world, so they made them more expensive and not really for large-scale production. And also remind, remember that uh, the amount of lead, it's really, really small. So if you consider that a solar cell is a few hundred nanometers thick, the, 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 the material, the lead, which is contained, is a very few uh, percentage of the total material. So this does not impact, I would say, on the total amount of lead contained. Uh, in, in the in the perovskite solar cell. However, this is more a uh, regulation affair, so it's not really scientific, you know, uh, um, a problem. It's, science cannot solve that. We have to, to see the regulations that will come out to, to regulate the amount of lead that can be uh, acceptable for these kind of applications. And another point, uh, since you mentioned at the beginning about what are the challenges? Of course, lead. Um, but I would say that um, 
the real goal is to go into the market. Uh, if you work on solar cells, on engineering and new photovoltaics, uh, this, this is the, the, the final goal of your research. Of course, uh, researching to the materials is, is crucial, it's very important. But then you, you, you want to think about what's your end goal. And to go towards this end goal, um, scaling up is also an important milestone to reach. Uh, to reach this goal. To do scaling up, you need to then face new challenges, how to develop large area modules, how to export what you have learned for small scale solar cell into larger modules in terms of materials, in terms of processing, in terms of stability as well. So those are, are the challenges, I think, which nowadays researchers into perovskite are are trying to solve. So we've talked a little bit about stability and a little bit about cost indirectly in terms of materials and the supply of them. Um, what about the other pillar of this triangle, which is efficiency? What are the challenges in, in getting perovskites to become more efficient? I think they're running at about 26% efficient. Is that, that right? Yeah, that's correct. So we are not too far from the theoretical limits uh, in uh, power conversion efficiency for the material, which is a band gap around 1.5 EV, uh, more or less. So uh, efficiency-wise, I would say that uh, um, there has been a tremendous boost in the efficiency in these last 10 years, which was mainly dictated by two factors. Number one, the optimization of the bulk perovskite crystals. That's the core, the active layer of your device. Number two, the interfaces. Because the perovskite device is a sandwich where you know the perovskite is your ham of the sandwich, but then you have the interfaces. And it's crucial to optimize interface processes to get the very high efficiency. In other words, reducing the losses like traps, non-radiative recombinations, charge accumulation, and so on. Um, beyond How to go beyond that? So, of course, working on these two directions is crucial. Interfaces are very crucial. This is especially the, the, the aim of my research group, working at three-dimensional, two-dimensional interfaces to boost device open circuit voltage by surface passivation and reducing trap density at the, at the interfaces. Uh, but on the other side, we can also use perovskite on top of other established technologies like silicon, and you can build what are called tandem photovoltaics. And this is an extremely interesting way to uh, boost the total efficiency um, of, of your final device. Only silicon can reach a certain limit, only perovskite can reach a certain theoretical limit, but if you put them together, you can really go and uh, push this uh, to very high value. Uh, so higher efficiency then means, uh, for instance, a smaller area you need to cover with your photovoltaic area, photovoltaic panel, or uh, um, in other words, a lower cost. You see the three parameters are always interconnected. 
So this is a very interesting area of research as well, I must say. So if you get your, your crystal ball, your perovskite crystal ball out and predict what we expect to see from perovskite PV materials in the next few years, what do you hope to see uh, the developments in this field? I would say that what can be a nice follow-up of all these research efforts uh, is, first of all, seeing a real application of these fantastic materials into a commercial solution that should be something new, that it's not that, it, it's not yet there in the market, but, but maybe these nice new materials can inspire new applications. You know, when you think about solar photovoltaics, you think about the solar modules which are installed on top of your rooftop. That, that's a general picture. But, but you might think about many new applications which uh, cannot be targeted with existing technologies. For instance, flexible, uh, transparent, colored, uh, light photovoltaics models with immense potential of application what are called the, the, the uh, smart cities of the future. So this is, you know, to go beyond what is the existing uh, expectation and maybe try to think out of blue and try to think out of the box, let's say, and imagine new applications, which are uh, realistic because that's the power of this material is that they are simply um, processed by low-cost techniques that can uh, and formed by solutions that you can deposit on a flexible substrate and so on. And the second point uh, I would say uh, is more centered on fundamental science. I also believe that the fundamental research in this class of materials can possibly open a new knowledge in the fundamental physical properties. Think about uh, excitonic physics uh, or interface physics, uh, charge transport phenomena. Uh, these are all uh, uh, aspects uh, that with this class of tunable material can be further investigated, uh, which is essential, I, I believe, uh, to support the application and new applications in particular. Julia, thank you very much for, for speaking to us about your research. That was a pleasure. Thank you very much. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast, which is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society. Thanks to Julia Grancini, Kwabena Boahen, and Margaret Harris for joining me today. And a special thanks to James Dacey, who is our producer this week. Please do join us again, but in the meantime, check out all of our summer holiday-themed material on the Physics World website. Physics World